0: Well, good morning. Uh, Matthew, thank you for uh, leading us this morning. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. I hope you are well-rested, and I hope that you are able to come again this evening to the communion and prayer service. Uh, Once again, it is my honor and privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of John, where we will spend our time together. John chapter 8, this morning, if you don't have a Bible with you, you, are most welcome to borrow one that is in the pew ahead of you. We'll be on page eight hundred and ninety-five of the pew Bible, and if you don't own a Bible, then you can just jack ours and uh, read it when you get home. Um, we're going to spend forty-five minutes or so in this passage, and so uh, before we uh, beget, get too deep into things, I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to um, calm the hearts and minds. Of the little ones that are in among us, and I pray that their fidgetedness would uh, not be too distracting, but just be the way things are. So, let's go ahead and begin reading from verse forty-eight on down to the end of the chapter, and then I will pray. John chapter eight forty-eight. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> The Jews answered, Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. And he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let's pray. Lord, this is your word. And this is the promise of your son. That if anyone keeps your word, they will not see death. And so, Father, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now to clear away the mist and allow us to see your Son. To clear away the doubt and allow us to believe in him. And to remove death that we might live in him. Come now. Give us understanding calm the hearts of the little ones among us. Give us patience and give us focus that we may hear the words of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother, can you take me down just a little bit really hot, either in the monitors or the mains or something? Well, so here we are, end of John chapter eight. We've been in John's gospel masterpiece for a number of months now, and I remind you... At this point of the apostles purpose in writing this gospel, he intends that you and I, the readers would see the son of God, see Jesus, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing that Jesus is the Christ, we would have life in his name. John tells us this much in chapter 20, verse 31, that that is his purpose. And as we have seen all over the gospel of John, the Lord Jesus Christ sent from God has come into the world and appeared before his people, wrapping himself in human flesh and speaking God's word to his own people. And the shocking effect so far in this gospel is that Jesus has been largely rejected by God's own people. Now, in fairness, the writer told us to expect this back in chapter 1. He said that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Well, this has become increasingly clear throughout the gospel, especially as we get to chapter 8 and we, we, begin, to, we begin to see as the Lord reveals himself in this messianic statement. He says, I am the light of the world. Now, of course, Jesus is not claiming to be a light in the world. He's claiming to be the light of the world. The light, there is only one light. Well, as light does, it reveals, it exposes. And Jesus own words expose the faults in his people's faith. You see they had trusted more in their lineage than in their Lord. And they had depended more upon their religion than on repentance to be right with God. They looked more to their father Abraham than to their father God. And it is my prayer that the Lord's words would do for you as it did for this audience. I pray that it would lay your heart bare. And it would expose the faults in your faith. There is of your life where you might be depending on anything other than Christ to be right with God. And by God's grace cause you to turn to repent of that idolatry and to trust in Christ and Christ alone. Well, I have to be honest, this has been the effect of John chapter 8 on my life. I have found myself undressed by this passage. The shame of my sins have been exposed by the light of God's truth in John 8. And the Lord has been as he always is, so tender to me, so gracious to me, permitting me to see my sin and to repent of my sin and to renew a right heart in me, such that the joy of God's salvation in my life is deeper today than it was just a few weeks ago when we entered John 8. So as we wrap up this chapter, I expect that we will look back on this chapter in fondness and remembering the Lord's mercy toward us in these four weeks. And my prayer for you is, as often is, that the Lord's words, while they are hard, would soften your heart. They would introduce you or reintroduce you to the greatness of God's love and mercy and thereby deepen your worship of God's own Son. And this would, I hope, further increase your boldness to spend your life for God's sake. Well, the, sum- the summary of my sermon is this, that God, you can see this in the back side of your handout if you have one, God brings glory to his Son through having his words keep his people from seeing death. So we'll work our way through this passage verse by verse. We begin verse 48 to 50. The Jews answered, Jesus, are we not right in saying that you, you're Samaritan? You have a demon And Jesus said, pull it up here, I don't have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Well, the rejection of Jesus in the Gospel of John has sort of reached a fever pitch at this point. God has sent his own son to his own people, and they do not recognize him. They, in fact, flat out reject him. They call him a racial slur and a demon. They call Jesus a Samaritan. Well, if you remember from chapter 4, when we were there, the Samaritans lived to the north of the, of the Jews. They were hated by the Jews. They were considered traitorous half-breeds. There were Jews who had rebelled against God many centuries ago and married pagans. They had kind of created their own version of the Bible, created their own place of worship. They were worse to the Jews than the Gentiles were. There was hardly anything worse than a Samaritan. And so this was a racial slur to call Jesus a Samaritan. But they also call him a demoniac. Are we right in saying that you have a demon? Well, what level of rejection must one Demonstrate towards the son of God to call him demonic. But nevertheless, this is their accusation. In verse 49, he says, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. So the Lord sort of just skips right over the racial slur. And he addresses the other accusation. He says, I don't have a demon. I can't have a demon because I live my life in honor of God. But they don't honor him. They're dishonoring to him. They're slandering God the Son. And in so doing, they have put themselves in conflict with God himself. Do you see that in verse 50? Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. So he's saying to them, if you've rejected me, if you've rejected Jesus Christ, you have found yourself at a cross section with the purposes of God. Jesus tells us that God has a purpose in the earth. God's purpose is to seek praise for his glory in his son. In other words, the purpose of God is to seek Jesus' glory above all things. The Apostle Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter chapter 4. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Well, Jesus has the same purpose, of course. He seeks the Father's glory. And as he seeks the Father's glory, the Father seeks his glory. One of the most wonderful elements of Jesus' relationship to the Father is this divine dance for one another's glory. Jesus always pressing upward in exaltation of God the Father and God the Father ever exalting the glory of God the Son. And then the Holy Spirit, they're stirring up this in both of them. Well, This has been going on forever. And so when Jesus comes to the earth, of course, he's going to do the very same thing he's been doing for eternity past. Exalting God the Father as the God the Father exalts God the Son. There is no being happier, more joyful, more full of thrill than God himself. Well, if that is true, then what does Jesus mean when he says, I do not seek my own glory? I think what he means is that he's relying on God, his Father, to seek Instead, Jesus didn't push himself forward, but he humbled himself, and he became a man. He became human. He became like us. He wore our frailties and weaknesses. Jesus Christ, the source of all power, got tired. Jesus Christ, the creator of food, became hungry. Jesus Christ, the author of life, laid down his life, and it was taken from him. As the Lord refuses human prestige and power, as the Lord is disgraced and rejected and despised, he entrusts himself to his Father. And the King of Heaven became obedient. The King of Heaven became obedient. And by his obedience to God's will, God, the Father, the judge, Jesus calls him, will glorify his Son in the end. I think Jesus means that he doesn't seek his glory from man because he knows in his perfect obedience to his Father, his Father will seek his glory and see to it that he is glorified. As Jesus seeks his Father's glory His Father seeks Jesus' glory. Well, this occurred to me when I read Jesus' words. In the moments following his betrayal by his own disciple Judas, listen to the Lord's words in John chapter 13. Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. It might take a thousand lifetimes to explore the depths of those two sentences, but to put it simply... In Jesus' humiliation, God was exalted. And when God was exalted, Jesus was exalted. Both bringing glory to one another. But I think we should slow up at this point. Because this is all well and good, but what does that mean for boots on the ground? That might be interesting information for theologians who wear bow ties. But what about... What about us? I have four kids and a mortgage. What does it matter to me? What does it mean, this passage, that God is glorifying his son and his son is glorifying his father? What does that mean for the single mom trying to scratch out a living? What does it mean for parents trying to get their kids to behave in church? What does it mean for a couple trying to take care of aging parents? Well here's where it matters. If God's great purpose is to bring glory to His Son, then the only thing of lasting value from our lives will arise from the very same. And so we must start asking ourselves, do I have the same purpose as God? If God's purpose is to glorify Jesus and Jesus' purpose is to glorify God the Father, then do I have the same purpose? Do I pay my bills and remain faithful to my job and parent my children and care for my parents to exalt Jesus in my life? Do I intend in all things to bring glory to God or am I intending my life to mean something else? The effect of studying and meditating on the nature of God and the glory of God and the purposes of God will be that, the, that God will realign the purposes of your life to his own. And in so doing, he will bring you to a place where everything that you do, when it's done for his sake, will have eternal, lasting value. What is spent on Christ and his glory will last. I borrow some words from Don Carson on this point. He writes, For the better we know God, the more we will want all our existence to revolve around him. And we will see only the goals and plans that really matter are those that are somehow tied to God himself and our eternity with him, End quote. So the man with four kids and a mortgage ought to pay his mortgage on time and keep his four kids in a house that brings glory to God in Christ. And the single mom trying to eke out a living ought to spend herself in raising her kids to the glory of God in Christ. And the folks caring for aging parents ought to spend their care on the glory of God in Christ. When done for Jesus' sake, Cornerstone, even the most menial tasks have lasting eternal value. Washing the dishes, folding the laundry, picking up the same toys for the 20th time that day, All done for the glory of Christ carries eternal value, lasting value. Friend, we ought not to forget the promise of our Lord who said that even giving a cup of cold water in his name carries a reward with it. The most menial task, carrying an eternal reward. I tell my kids when they do their chores, do it for the glory of God. You can do it for some other purpose, and that's fine, too, as long as the chore gets done. You're going to do the chore either way. You can either get a lasting value or no value at all, but you're going to do the chore either way. So why not do it for God's sake? Otherwise, you're just loading the dishwasher and nothing more. Well, we move on. Verse 51. The Lord, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death, to which the Jews say, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you saying you're greater than the father Abraham? Because he died. you saying you're greater than the prophets? They died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I'd be a liar just like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Last week, the Lord said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And he says something similar here. When he says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, this is not the first time we have heard Jesus say this. Those of you who have been with us in the Gospel of John, you remember from chapter 5, the Lord said, whoever hears my word and believes me, believes him who sent me, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. Now, of course, Jesus is referring to spiritual death. It doesn't mean that once you become a Christian, you will never physically die just means that those who are in Christ who are keeping the word of Christ will never see death. Though their bodies may die, they will continue going on living forever. The Bible says of a Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For the Christian, a life centered around keeping the word of Christ is not perfect, to be sure, but it is central. And truth be told, in our attempts to keep the word of Christ, we're actually the ones being kept by the word of Christ. It is the Lord keeping us as much as we are keeping his word. As we give ourselves to studying the Scripture, we're depending on His Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit helps keep us in His Word. Jude, verse 24, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. A Christian keeps the words of God and she is being kept by the Word of God. This results... And that anyone who keeps the word of Christ will never see death. Now the Jews, of course, take issue with this. Saying, we know you're crazy now. Because you're saying that if anyone keeps your word, they'll never die. Well, Abraham's dead. The prophets are dead. And I love that line in verse 53. Who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Well, in response, Jesus returns to his father's purpose again. He says, I don't seek my own glory. My glory is taken care of by God. And he returns to something he said last week. The Jews are claiming that Abraham is their father. Well, that's not true. The Jews are even claiming that God is our father. But of course, you know, that is not true. Because Jesus said, if God were your father, then you'd be about the same thing that God is about. Namely, my glory. Verse 55, but you have not known him? Can you imagine hearing that? Can you imagine being one of those in that crowd today? Some fella comes along, he claims to know God, he claims to be from God, and he says to you, who you have lived your entire life for God, and he says, you've never even known him. I know him. And because I know him, I know you don't know him. How can you say that? Because if they had known God, then they would be about the father's business as he was. If they had known God, then they would be about God's business. He put it like this last week. If God were your father, you would love me. And then verse 56 answers the question. Are you, are, you, are you saying you're greater than Abraham? You're saying greater than the prophets? Listen carefully to what the Lord says here. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now that, that's tremendously offensive. Jesus is claiming himself to be the fulfillment of, Of the life and the ministry and the faith of Abraham. Jesus is saying, Abraham, I am who Abraham lived for. A stunning statement. Well, there are some mysteries about how exactly this is true. We don't really know exactly. The Lord doesn't say exactly how it was that Abraham saw Jesus' day and rejoiced. We could speculate. Could have been the time when God gave him the promise. Genesis 12. So through you all the nations will be blessed. Could have been then. Could have been when Abraham had to bind up his son. Bring him to the altar. The son of promise. Could have been then. Could have been that time under the trees. When those three visitors appeared to Abraham. That could have been the time as well. We don't know exactly when Abraham saw Jesus' day. Whenever it was, Hebrews 11 says he saw it from afar. But the point isn't that when Abraham saw Jesus' day, the point is that he saw Abraham's did and day, Jesus' day, and when he did, it made Abraham glad to see it. The point is, Jesus is the object of Abraham's faith. Abraham was looking forward to me. Well, if that's not clear to the crowd or to you, the Lord will graciously be inescapably clear in what he says next. This is verse 57 to 59. So the Jews said to Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. And you, you say to have seen Abraham? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him but he hid himself and left the temple. Now, Jesus is probably in his early 30s at this point in his life, and Abraham's been dead for almost 2,000 years. And so they're confused by this. How could Abraham see your day? You're not even 50 years old, but Abraham's been dead for 2,000 years. But you have claimed that you see Abraham. But that's not what he said, was it? He saw that Abraham saw me. So the Lord then goes and makes it absolutely crystal clear what he is claiming to be, who he is making himself out to be. And verse 58 is perhaps the clearest claim that Jesus makes of his own divinity in the whole of scripture. John 8 Verse 58 is 100% absolute claim from the lips of Jesus Christ, I am God. Read it again. Truly, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now the syntax is, is wacky. He could have said, before Abraham was, I was. That would have been true. Jesus is uncreated. He's eternal. He coexisted with God in eternity. He pre-existed Abraham. So he could have said, before Abraham was, I was. And that would have been a claim to deity. But he goes even further than that. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. This is a claim to be God. What Jesus is doing in John eight fifty eight is Jesus is applying God's own personal name to himself. When God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush, he told Moses, you're going to deliver my people. Moses had a question and Moses' question was who am I going to say sent me? What's your name? And what follows is among the most important and sacred texts of scripture for the Jews. This is Exodus chapter 3 verse 13 and 14. Listen to the interchange between Moses and God and then remember what Jesus just said. This passage would have been locked in the Jews' mind. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God's personal name, Yahweh, is derived from the phrase, I am that I am. The name of God is sacred to the Jewish people. So when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. He is claiming that he is the God in the burning bush. He's the God who spoke to Moses. He's Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not only was Abraham looking forward to me. Abraham worshipped me. Prayed to me trusted in me well of course you can see why that would have been just unacceptable kind of language from any man that's blasphemy and so they pick up rocks to kill him but they couldn't kill him it wasn't his time He's, John says in John 8:59 they it, jesus hid himself And went out of the temple. In that sentence, there's most likely a sentence. That sentence full of symbolism, no doubt. He hid himself and went out of the temple. Well, the whole point is this. Cornerstone, Jesus Christ is God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob... Which means that Jesus' words are God's words. Jesus Christ is not like the new and improved God. It's not like the Old Testament God who didn't like people, who was capricious and angry and mean. If you ticked him off, he would kill you. And then Jesus came along as sort of this new and nice version of God. Jesus Christ is God. He makes that abundantly clear throughout the Gospel of John, specifically here in John chapter 8. So Jesus is God. Jesus' words are God's words. Therefore, Jesus' words have life because Jesus' words are God's words. Therefore, those who keep Jesus' life-giving words will never die. Three implications of this passage and we'll close our time together. One of the implications for my unbelieving friends and two for the rest of us. First, to avoid spiritual death, we must keep the word of Jesus Christ. Unbelieving friend, you must heed the words of Jesus Do not play games with what you have heard here today. Left on your own, you will die in your sins, and the wrath of God for your sins will crush you for eternity. I plead with you, run to the cross of Christ. Meet God's love and satisfaction for your sins. And lean into verse 51, where the Lord says, Anyone who keeps my words, anyone. So, no matter what sin you have been guilty of in the past, God is big enough to forgive that sin. whatever evil you have given yourself over to, whatever way that you have dishonored the Lord Christ, God is big enough to forgive you. Turn to him, confess your sin, trust in Christ and follow him. Do it today. Don't play games. My unbelieving friend, I want you to understand something. It is not by accident that you are here today. God brought you into this place and God spoke to you, John chapter eight, in order to save your soul. Don't resist him. Turn to him. Confess your sins and trust him. Second implication for the rest of us. God has made his will known to you today in his word. Whether you've been a Christian for one day Or for four decades, God has made his will clear to you and he intends to exalt his son in glory. And I wonder if you find yourself concerned with the same. I wonder if you have oriented your life for the same purposes. When you are evaluating the course of your life, have you even considered this? Does your life bring glory to your father? When your eyes close for the last time, how will you be remembered as one who spent her life on the glory of Christ or some other purpose? Because, friend, the, the reality is we're all going to die one way or the other. And if you spend your life on yourself, you may end up in heaven. I don't know. But your life won't amount for anything. But if you spend your life, even the menial things, on God being exalted in Christ, even those little things that you have done will result in an eternal weight of glory. Cornerstone, it is not too late to realign your life. What will retirement look like to you? More time spent on leisure? or more time spent on seeing Christ formed in your brothers and sisters in your church? Will retirement be built around traveling and seeing the world, or will retirement be built around traveling to advance the gospel among the nations of the earth? If it's God's will to exalt his son in glory, what is your will? And is it the same? Third implication. My dear Cornerstone, Jesus gave you a promise that if you keep his word, you will never see death. Now, how is that even possible? Here's how it's possible. You will never see death because Jesus saw it for you. You will never taste death because Jesus drank the whole cup for you. Jesus faced death to save you from death. But death, as you know, didn't have the last word, did it? In his resurrection, Jesus conquered death. Death itself died when Jesus came to life. And those who are in Christ will never see death. Of course, then listen to what the Lord is saying. You will never see death. The moment this Body stops working, you will be in the presence of God forever. Your eternity in heaven is as guaranteed as the grave is empty. you will never see death. And so I have to ask you this question. I just want you to wonder to yourself if that's true. If you really believe that's true, why do we live such cautious lives? If we truly believe that we will never see death, why are we so concerned about health and safety? If those words are true, what are we afraid of? What is there to be afraid of? You will never die. May God be gracious to us to free us from the shackles of the fear of death. And may he equip us with boldness, trusting in that promise, so that we would spend our lives on the gospel of Jesus Christ with fearless abandon. Just want you to ask yourself, why do I hold back? If God is my provider, why do I hold back? In my giving. If I will never see death, what can man do to me? Why won't I share my faith? If God is the holder of my reputation, if it's secure in Christ, why am I worried about losing it when I share my faith? If you keep Jesus' words, you will never die. Never die. May that inspire fearless abandon in boldness to serve the mission of God in this church. Let's stand to our feet. Matthew, will come back up. We're going to ask the Lord's mercy on us during a prayer of confession. The Lord has revealed his word to us. He has exposed the sin in us. And now we must ask for his mercy. Will you pray with me? God of all grace, of infinite power and mercy, we come to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we confess to you, like the crowd, we have dishonored your Son. We repent for spending our lives on things that do not bring glory to your Son, We recognize that we have contaminated your will with our wants. And in so doing, we have not given your son a rightful life of worship that he deserves. Lord, we admit that we have played it safe. We have sought safety and comfort in worldly things. And in so doing, we have functionally denied your son's promise. And so we pray now that you might forgive us of this trespass, that you might cleanse us of the unrighteous self-preservation in us. And we pray you would make us clean. Lord, grant this little church fearless boldness to witness the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives of our friends and our family, our coworkers, our neighbors. May we stake our lives on Jesus' words that we will never see death because he saw it for us. There's nothing left to be seen. And we thank you for this. And we pray our lives would reflect that thankfulness. So for these and our many other sins, we confess, we repent, and pray that you would forgive us. In Jesus' name.